Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a nor'easter dumps up to 12 inches of snow in some parts of the state. This fierce winter blast causing dangerous driving, transit delays, and school closings. I'm most concerned with the road conditions tomorrow morning as temperatures drop below freezing overnight. Plus, dire straits. Three CarePoint Hudson County hospitals face financial woes, forcing the state to request disaster plans. It would be catastrophic if any one of these hospitals closed, let alone two or three. And as a delegation, we are not going to let that happen. Also, two recent suicides at the New Jersey State Prison renew concerns over the use of prolonged periods of solitary confinement. We hear from people inside who say that they're only getting out you know, not maybe not even an hour a day. And missing Menendez. Immigration advocates speak out, concerned about a Latino voice if the embattled U.S. Senator steps down or loses his seat. But we have yet to see any strong immigration proposals around comprehensive immigration reform from leading candidates Andy Kim or Tammy Murphy. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Tuesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. After a mostly quiet winter, New Jersey got what forecasters believe is the biggest snowstorm of the season, at least so far. The quick moving storm ended around 1 p.m., but not before dropping up to a foot of heavy snow in some parts of the state. Early reports tallied 12 inches in Vernon and 10 inches in Knowlton, Warren County. Wind gusts up to 40 miles per hour knocked out power to several thousand homes and businesses during the height of the snowfall this morning. Though most of North Jersey got just a few inches, about four in Verona and two inches further south in Howell. Coastal flooding was an issue, though, along the shore. Daytime high tide was the peak of flooding. This is a parking lot in Keyport engulfed in Baywater. The powerful nor'easter resulted in thousands of canceled flights for the region, school and state office closings. It was, though, a much-needed snow day for some, and as Raven Santana reports, time to shovel out for others. Many residents woke up to sounds of plows and salt trucks driving up and down streets after Mother Nature reminded us all, despite the warmer temperatures, we're very much still in winter. And today's winter storm dumped several inches of snow across the Garden State, from Highbridge to Kenilworth, South Orange to Vernon. It was more of a winter wonderland for northern New Jersey, according to meteorologist Alex Starman at the National Weather Service in Mount Holly. The, the northern half of the state definitely uh, got the most snow. They, they definitely got the most snow uh, up that way just because it's a little bit colder up there. Starman adds while South Jersey may have seen the actual snow falling, what they didn't get was an accumulation of it. Um, so farther south, uh, the temperatures are uh, near to just above freezing, which is why the snow is struggling to accumulate this far south. 
Um, and, you know, basically it's, it's melting as it's falling is, is kind of what we say. Right now, it looks like uh, Sussex County uh, has the most in the state. Uh, we have several reports of about 8 to 12 inches in Sussex County. Nobody wants ice over snow. We'll take snow any day over ice. Joseph Polake is the director of engineering for public works and facilities in the county of Union. He says about 100 crew members have been working around the clock, salting and plowing streets since 3 a.m. We probably have, right now, we probably have about 40 to 45 trucks out on the road, but then support staff and, and facilities trucks and everything, we're probably looking at about 65 pieces of equipment throughout the county. This is one of four salt storage facilities the county utilizes. This one here in Scotch Plains holds about 1,500 tons, but Palakay says throughout the storm, he expects six to 700 tons to be used. There's, there's probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand tons left in here. This is, this is one of our two main facilities here in the County of Union, and we have two other facilities that we share with municipalities. Well, we. Our most number one priority is the hills to the hospitals. They run their route constantly. They do a center cut in the snow and then they do a curb cut. In the end, they'll plow the roads. So in the, in the county, we don't have many complaints about their roads are not, not salted in the end. State climatologist Dave Robinson's concerns echo Pollockies as he says he's not worried about cleanup. He's worried about ice. I, I'm most concerned with the road conditions tomorrow morning as temperatures drop below freezing overnight. Those untreated roads, I think it's tomorrow morning that's going to have the, the traffic concerns or the travel concerns. Robinson adds that the battle is for tomorrow. So while the snow is here, try to look on the brighter side of the situation as we may not see another snowstorm soon. That it seems more of our snows coming in larger events and it's not lasting as long on the ground once it's here. Um, by next week, maybe a memory. So people should just you know, take advantage and get out on their sleds and skis and, and enjoy this for now. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. It's no secret three major hospitals in Hudson County are struggling financially and asking the state for more than $100 million in fiscal relief. But this week, New Jersey's Department of Health ordered CarePoint Health System, which runs the hospitals, to submit disaster plans for the facilities, citing ongoing and serious money troubles. The hospitals are saying the state's order is causing unnecessary panic for medical employees and their patients, while some law Makers believe it's a signal the health system needs a lifeline. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. CarePoint's three hospitals in Hudson County show clear symptoms they're ailing financially. A state monitor's recent diagnosis found Christ Hospital in Jersey City, Bayonne Medical Center, and Hoboken University Medical Center are financially unstable. Their cash flow so anemic, the facilities could fiscally flatline and close. It would be catastrophic if any one of these hospitals closed, let alone two or three. And as a delegation, we are not going to let that happen. 
Senator Raj Mukherjee represents Jersey City and Hoboken. He calls CarePoint a safety net and notes that behind the glittering high-rise facades, Hudson County's home to thousands of undocumented migrants and residents without health insurance who often seek charity care at the three hospitals. CarePoint claims it served more than 270,000 such patients since the COVID crisis, but only got a $10 million slice of Jersey's $700 million in federal pandemic aid. These hospitals handle much more charity care than most of their counterparts throughout the state. That's uncompensated care. And on top of that, their Medicaid reimbursements for the high volume of indigent patients they have that are on Medicaid um, don't get them to a break-even point. New Jersey's Department of Health recently sent each hospital a letter stating, due to CarePoint's significant financial distress, the hospitals may experience a disruption in services or be forced to close abruptly. It requested a so-called disaster plan for potential hospital evacuations. But a CarePoint spokesman replied, it is absolutely categorically false to claim that any of them are at imminent risk of closing, and doing so only creates unnecessary stress on the dedicated physicians and staff working hard every day. Bayonne's mayor noted this type of disaster plans required of all hospitals, not just those experiencing financial issues, and that all parties are working on solutions. And close to 1,700 folks have signed CarePoint's Change.org petition, seeking at least $100 million in state appropriations and a $30 million governor's grant in order to continue operating at an optimal pace. I think that that's an ambitious ask. I think there's going to need to be accountability in terms of uh, an audit, in terms of the reporting from the fiscal monitor, uh, transparency from the hospital system also. Um, I think that if we fine tune that number to what is minimally necessary to survive and then eventually thrive post-closing, uh, you're looking at a more modest number. McCurgy suspects CarePoint could get an eight-figure number in stabilization aid from Jersey's Department of Health, enough to keep it going while it negotiates a joint venture with Hudson Regional Hospital based in Secaucus. Meanwhile, the state monitor will oversee CarePoint's finances. It's been sued for non-payment by several vendors seeking millions of dollars. We should be looking at a true public option in New Jersey and extending healthcare benefits to those among us who don't have documentation like New York and other states have done creatively because that would also help bolster our acute care hospitals and other healthcare providers that are serving the vulnerable. He says New Jersey's charity healthcare system needs a funding upgrade. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Three years ago, the state put in place new limits on how long inmates can be held in isolation, or what used to be called solitary confinement. But two recent suicides at the New Jersey State Prison have led to renewed questions over whether the Department of Corrections is following the law. Years of research shows inmates with mental illness shouldn't be kept in isolated confinement for prolonged periods because it intensifies suicidal thoughts. The new law requires prisoners in those housing units to leave their cells for at least four hours a day, but a deeper probe by the state's corrections ombudsperson shows, at least in some prisons, that isn't happening. Our senior writer Colleen O'Day investigated and joins me now with her latest reporting.
Colleen, uh, good to talk to you. Uh, what a great report. Uh, I want to ask you first what we know about these suicides and if there are any details that show us that being in the solitary confinement led to this uh, tragic case. Um, so we know that there were five last year and then one in January of this year. Two, two, one of those from last year, so two since uh, Thanksgiving involved people who were in uh, a restorative housing unit or a, a unit where you, you are uh, very much set aside from the other folks. So uh, that's something that lots of studies have said is not uh, good, as, particularly for people with a mental health um, illness. And the person who uh, died this year, we are told by a number of sources, uh, did have some mental health um, concerns. So, um, but but the, the Department of Corrections is investigating and they are not providing any more details. So how much time are inmates getting outside of their cells and how do we know that that information is accurate? Um, one gentleman who I spoke with said that in the month of December, he only got outside for three hours in the entire month. There is a state law that requires everyone to get out of their cell for at least four hours a day. Um, the, the state ombudsman for corrections did a survey last year and found that in uh, over the course of the spring, uh, there were only three locations where individuals were actually getting those four hours out. So when you spoke with the Department of Corrections, are they taking steps to at least meet the bare minimum requirements of this law, or are they taking steps to prevent situations like this where inmates die by suicide? So they, you know, they say that they are really trying their best to meet the law. Um, there are a number of things that make that hard for them. For instance, when you've got folks who are in older prisons like New Jersey State Prison, which is one of the oldest prisons in the nation, um, the hallways are small. And if there is any kind of an issue uh, in a wing where where folks are um, and officers have to go investigate, then essentially there's a lockdown and no one can get out of their cell. So that makes it harder, uh, if not impossible on some days for everyone to get out. Um, in terms of the prevention of suicides, the state uh, has been doing a number of things. Uh, they do screen inmates as they come in for mental illness. Um, they do have a task force now that is looking at this. Um, they say that that um, all officers, all staff are um, authorized to put anybody on a suicide watch. Um, so we're really not sure what happened in this, you know, in these last two instances. Um, but but something fell through the cracks, and these these uh, people were able to suicide. Yeah, uh, as as is evident. There, there's a correction ombudsperson in place, yes, who is supposed to not only take the grievances that come from the inmates, but also look into them. What did that office find, and does it bear out what your reporting shows? Yeah, so they, it, it's, it's just constant complaints that the office gets um, of folks saying that they are not getting time out of their cells as, as required by the law. The women's prison, in fact, was where it was most likely for folks to be able to get out. And that's because they're, um, these restorative housing units, um, those are smaller, so it's easier for, for the officers to be able to get people in and out. And is there um, any it, indication, Colleen, that the state is going to step in and, and put more oversight into this? 
So that's a good question. The Ombudsman's Office says that um, whenever they make a report, the state is required to respond. Now, the state responded to us. Um, they haven't issued any a formal report response. They are expected to put out a report later this month um, or perhaps early next month looking from their perspective on what's happening in terms of their um, compliance with the, the state law. So we'll have to see what more they maybe have to say. And you can obviously check out Colleen's full reporting, which it shows how New Jersey stacks up compared to the rest of the nation. Colleen O'Day, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Bree. It's moving day for dozens of residents at the Stanley Holmes Village in Atlantic City. But tenants at the aging housing complex aren't going willingly. They were given notice four days ago that they'd need to temporarily relocate to a nearby hotel, while the local housing authority makes repairs that have been languishing at the apartments, in some cases, for several months. As Ted Goldberg reports, advocates are calling this a Band-Aid fix for a much larger problem. We had a moment of crisis where everybody can say we have to do better. Residents of Stanley Homes Village are finally getting a major repair, but it's led to 20 people being forced to live at the Claridge Hotel for about a month. Two buildings have been evacuated so the Atlantic City Housing Authority, or ACHA, can patch up leaks in sewage pipes. People received these flyers last Thursday, giving them four days notice to pack their stuff. That's the goal, to make it as least traumatic as possible. No one wants to move from the units, but uh, these repairs are necessary. Uh, people have to be out of the units, so the goal is to make it as bearable as possible. City Councilman Kaleem Shabazz says the ACHA is providing three meals a day for the affected residents. Since the flyers mentioned that anyone staying here can't cook in their rooms or use a microwave. People who've moved to this hotel had plenty of other questions that weren't initially answered. Where are they going to park their cars? Uh, what about my rent? How am I going to get back and forth for transportation? Those are key things that they, they really wasn't looking at. Stephen Young leads the South Jersey chapter of the National Action Network. He said residents got some answers during a meeting last night, but there are deeper issues affecting Stanley Homes, the oldest public housing complex in New Jersey. The overall problem and issue still can continue to exist if you don't get to the root of the problem. If all those finances have been coming here all these years, it's about maintaining the property. These properties have not been maintained properly for years, and it, it's neglect, and it's causing human rights violation, no heat, no hot water. People who live at Stanley Homes have told us about the inconsistent hot water in their homes and heating that sometimes fails during cold weather. We can't wait no longer. Uh, we can't continue to wait. This has gotten too far. Young says it took a lawsuit and large-scale attention for the ACHA to start making fixes, and residents are organizing a bus to Washington, D.C. to bring more attention to their concerns. It took the residents continue going to the meetings to speak up, press conferences. We have gotten in touch with the Secretary of HUD, and we have not got an answer from her. We have gotten in touch with um, Congressman Van Drew, who sent her a letter. Uh, Senator Menendez sent her a letter, and we've gotten in touch with Senator Booker's office, and no response. We reached out to the ACHA for the story and didn't hear back. Councilman Shabazz has criticized them in the past, but he says they've done a good job working with the Claridge Hotel to give these folks a place to stay. Stanley is a long-standing problem, a historical problem, deep structural uh, uh, disadvantages. Long-term, Stanley has to change 
because it is almost impossible to bring Stanley up to a condition that people will be satisfied with and will provide uh, a humane standard of living. So we're doing patchwork. Uh, so I'm optimistic that with partnerships and cooperation, it can get better. According to that letter, the ACHA will start repairs tomorrow and will give tenants an update and timeline on March 1st. They could move back in on the 11th, but that's a tentative date and could easily change. In Atlantic City, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. The recent collapse of a border deal in Congress coupled with U.S. Senator Bob Menendez's uncertain political future has immigration advocates worried about an overall lack of Latino representation for New Jersey and whether the nation will lose one of its fiercest champions for the immigrant community. Long before his federal corruption charges, Menendez made history as the first Latino member of Congress from the Garden State. Few could rival his institutional knowledge on immigration policy. Menendez still hasn't declared whether he's officially running for re-election, but a senior political correspondent, David Cruz, reports there's a lot of backroom chatter about ensuring a successor is just as strong on the issue. Say what you will about Senator Bob Menendez, and nowadays there's lots to say, but there are few lawmakers in the deep water of immigration reform as Menendez. That's him back in 2013 when the so-called Gang of Eight vainly tried comprehensive immigration reform. He's remained a leading voice, haranguing every president since, including the current one. We're giving them a white paper that basically speaks to a whole host of better options to control the border and deal with these issues. Uh, and I hope the president takes those options, uh, and, because if not, he risks uh, becoming the you know, asylum denier in chief. Let's see one of the leading Democrats for Senate be that sharp. And that's the point that some immigration advocates are making about losing Menendez one way or another as a voice for Latinos and for immigration reform in particular. Senator Menendez has been a staunch advocate for comprehensive immigration reform. He's one of the earliest vocal opponents of um, detention centers in the state. Uh, you know, he's advocated for the extension and redesignation of TPS. He hasn't been shy about, um, uh, you know, criticizing the Biden administration about Title 42. Nelia Morsi of Make the Road, New Jersey, says... Menendez was unafraid to tackle the complexities of the immigration issue, which is something that State Senator Teresa Ruiz says comes from the lived experience. It was something she called for in the earliest days of the Menendez scandal when many were calling for him to be replaced. A Latino-centered person, someone who understands the community, someone who captures the voice, it is, it is to me, that is the primary focus. There is no vacancy currently, currently right now, but when there is one, Latinos in the state have to be loud and proud about who we want representing us. Ruiz isn't backing anyone in the Senate primary, but Patricia Campos Medina takes her point as a rationale for her own Senate candidacy. I worked with Senator Menendez on some of the stuff that he did around the gun of aid when we were trying to figure out what was a comprehensive immigration reform. We have we figured out how to protect workers in the workplaces. So I am ready because I understand the minutia of the policy solution. But Campos Medina is polling in single digits. Like it or not, Democrats are likely getting either Murphy or Kim, and neither has overwhelmed advocates on the issue so far.
we have yet to see any strong immigration proposals around comprehensive immigration reform from leading candidates, Andy Kim or Tammy Murphy. I think that's one of the biggest things that set the work of Senator uh, Menendez so far apart about his his advocacy around um, a comprehensive immigration reform. Activist Hector Oseguera says you can't expect someone who's Latino to automatically have the best answers just because they're Latino. A senator could be the, the greatest person when it comes to the issue of immigration, but if you're uncomfortable standing next to that person because they have underlying corruption issues or some other very bad policy stances, it may undercut the value that they bring to the table in terms of the issue of immigration. Congress has decided that immigration reform is off the table for now, again, and getting it back into the front of the line of priorities has rarely seemed more difficult. And for many, that makes this hurt even more. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. Turning to Wall Street for our Spotlight on Business report, stocks fell today after January inflation numbers came in higher than expected. Consumer prices are up 3.1 percent over the same time last year. That's a smaller annual increase than we saw in December, but the report is sowing doubt over how quickly the Fed will cut interest rates. Here's how the markets closed today. And that does it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. Be safe on the roads. We'll see you back here tomorrow night. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Have some water. Look at these kids. What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.